she's been very supportive and like I mean for anybody to um to be like okay with your spouse like I'm going to quit my job and not make any money for a while. <laughs> and I want to go into an industry where generally no one where, makes any money. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's like kind of a joke, joke <laughs> that you're going to make money. Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with the owner of Grand Trunk Games, Joshua Starr. We discuss his upcoming Kickstarter, 1861-1867, starting a company to advance accessibility and affordability of 18xx games, and how he can provide two 18xx games in one box for $60. Thanks for listening. Josh became a gamer at UC Berkeley while studying business. After graduation, he picked up an 18xx habit and fell in love with the trains. A year ago, Josh left his job to pursue his dream of making 18xx more affordable and accessible. Josh's San Diego company, Grand Trunk Games, opens a Kickstarter on Friday, October 18, 2019 to float their first qualified offering. The two Ian Wilson games, 1861 and 1867, cover early rail development in Russia and Canada respectively and were originally offered in small numbers. They've grown wide acceptance and acclaim in the community as challenging but not overwhelming games that are appropriate for the first-timers. The designer also has added some fast play options that were not previously available. The two games are offered in one box at a fantastic price of $60. Check out the Kickstarter campaign 1861 Russia and 1867 Canada, available October 18, 2019. We'll start the podcast with a question about whether it's possible to sleep nights and install a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, it's been hard to, to disconnect. It's been, I mean, which is fine with the Kickstarter being a few days out. Um, but yeah, I had, a, I had a dream last night. So I, I went to bed around 1 a.m. I had a dream that I, I was awoken from around 4.30 or something like that. And I was thinking about, oh, these components. Oh, what if we did this? <laughs> and then so my, my graphic designer, Kareem uh, Chakran, he's, uh, he's in Paris. Or I think he's in Paris, he's, but he's in France. So he's going to, so during the nighttime, he's, I'm getting all these emails and stuff. So I, I wake up and I'm checking out oh, what time it is. And then I see all these emails that I got and throughout the night. Cause I spent like, I spanned him like five or six emails. I'm really, Kareem, if you're listening to this, I am so sorry. Like he's been a really, really, really big champ. I'm so, I think I'm, I need to be a lot more grateful to how patient he is with me. Cause I'm like, this is my main project. This is my baby. So I've been, I've been saying well, can it be this way? Can it be that way? So anyways, I woke up at 4.30, 4.45. I saw my emails. I tried to put it away and go back to sleep. And then I'm sitting there for 30 minutes. I was like, okay, we're responding. Because <laughs> I also, what I'm trying to do also is um, uh, for the Kickstarter launch, I'm like, I have all these blogs that I have been wanting to write um, for the Kickstarter or for the game. And I have all these things that, because we've been digging into graphic design for like, six months like six six to nine months like or i actually spent six months on my own looking at graphic design i spent six months with kareem working on graphic design um so i have all these all this information that i have in my head that i want to dump out on a paper and i just haven't had time to like write all this stuff so i'm using the kickstarter as, a, as my excuse like okay well you have to do your daily countdown so this is you can if you have to force yourself to write something every day you can like dump dump this stuff out on paper because it's all really interesting stuff about how the games were getting developed the things that we're looking into things that we're running into um and then but some of these blog like some of the blogs took 20 to 30 hours to write 
Um, and it's like, cause, cause you, cause you'll write it and you realize like, no, that's not what happened or that's not the things that we were thinking about. Cause I'll get the process wrong or the order mixed up or something like that. And so I like, I'll scrap it and re- start, start over from scratch. Um, but it's been, it's been a really, really blast working on it because 18XX is one of those things that's been around for a long time. It's been since the 18XXs, since the 18XXs, it feels like that, <laughs> but yeah, there's, I mean, it's been around for a while and, uh, there are a lot of people who are very convinced that the way it's done is the right way. And I'm in to their credit, um, in the analysis that I was doing for, um, 1861 and 1867, which are the games coming to Kickstarter, we'll talk about in a second. Um, I found that actually a lot of the graphic design is on point. Um, the the big thing with 18xx is you can have a tiny component sitting way across the table, and the infor- the there's six pieces of information on that tile, and every one of those pieces of information are important. So how do you how do you take something that has that much information, make it usable, but also make it look good? And that's that's kind of the crux of why 18xx for so long, everybody's so defensive about making sure that 18xx is presented a certain way because once all the competitive players are, are in the game, they're like, well, I don't want to play a game that looks beautiful but it's not functional, right? You're, you're, you Throw away all the art, throw away all that stuff. I want it, the game to be usable. And so my whole thing was... I want to find a way to not just make the game look better, but also improve its usability, which is why it's been such a long process to dig into it. It it reminds me of the last house that we bought, my wife and I, Mm. right? We said, all right, this bathroom, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this in the master, and we're going to do this in the kitchen. Mm. And that was a project. And instead of doing it right away, we decided to do it after two or three years. So two or three years pass. And we grow comfortable with it, right? <laughs> and, be- and because we're comfortable, n- nothing happens. And we choose to do nothing. And it seems to me that, that the 18xx community is so comfortable and so familiar that not only are they comfortable with them, but they would rain holy hell on you if you messed with their yellow tiles. So um, I have an offer. Would you like to write marketing copy for Grand Trunk Games? We don't pay well. <laughs> But we give great <laughs> hugs and handshakes. Um, no, that's that, that's a great analogy, and that's the that's kind of the crux of it. And the the thing is, you know, it's not to say that things in 18xx are done wrong. It's that I think a lot of people's attitude is if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because what they like is what they like, and there's switching costs involved with adapting to new ways that things are presented. Now, granted, a lot of the things that I went through for the graphic design process. Um, yeah, I found that I found that the tiles, yeah, they're not broken. Don't fix them because there's so much information on them. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to, I'm trying to update it or change it is going to hurt the usability. So I'm kind of like keeping this, I'm keeping this, some of that standardized, some of the things with, um, other components. Yeah. Okay. This, this works. But then other things I realized, oh, well actually some of this stuff, like some of the stuff is. Hard to use. So it, one thing, so in 18xx, you have something called a charter. What a charter is, is it represents the company entity. It's a big sheet of paper. And pretty much the idea of the charter is that's your bucket that you're going to throw all the things that belong to the company. In. So it's going to have money. It's going to have, in, in these games, you uh, have cards that are trains. Uh, some companies uh, have shares of the company uh, within it. So say, for example, it's a company that has 100% and there are 10 or there's 10 shares that each represent 10% of the company. So if you buy a share, you just bought 10%. So some in some 18xx games, you have the share sitting on the charter itself because the company still owns a chunk of itself and it can issue shares or it can like it can sell shares out of it and the money goes onto the charter. It's just selling portions of itself to raise capital. Um, a few things that I noticed, though, is that on the charters, it's very typical in 18xx um, that all this player aid information is on the charter itself because it's the giant piece of paper. You might as well, hey, why don't we use this? So in Euro stuff? games, we call that a tableau now almost, right? Right, right. Well, a tableau is more like, um, yeah, I, I would agree. Well, it's kind of like your pl- own player sheet. Um, I always think of a tableau as like your arrangement of all the stuff around you. But yeah, I would say that something like that. But each of these different, you might be running two or three or four companies and you also have your personal assets in the tableau. Um but for eight for these charters, um, 
you have all these different things covering the charter. So it has the only place in the game sometimes where this information is available is on the charter and all the stuff is getting covered up. And I kind of thought, and when I was designing it, I kind of thought, well, it's obvious, it's a no-brainer that you have that information there. And as I was working with, um, as I was playing with new, a lot of new players, they're like, oh, when does this happen? I say, oh, it's on your charter. And they're like, oh, what? And then they have to like pick up all their stuff and, oh, okay, I didn't even know that was there. <laughs> and it's kind of, it's one of those things that it's, that's, that's pretty much standard across most 18xx titles is that you have that information on the charter. And I, th I mean, maybe, okay, maybe I tell them the one time, then after that, okay, maybe it's fine. But I just found it really interesting that that was like the one place that the information was and we were covering up consistently. In addition to that, like, say, for example, there's information where on a charter, a company might only, there's a game that has loans, maybe a company can actually only hold two loans. Maybe a company can only hold five loans. And then, but there's kind of, there's a, there will be text on the charter that says like, oh, max loans too, or something like that. But I kind of felt like, well, where's, you know, we have all the space, all the space. Why don't we use that so that there's kind of, you don't even have to say it. You kind of intuitively know based off the way that information is organized. So like make two slots on the charter that actually have, it's, it's the same size as the loan tokens. That's where they go. You kind of inherently know there's only two slots there. So you can kind of intuitively understand, oh, two loan slots five loan slots that's a that's just kind of a small example but there's like little those things and those little bits of those throughout the different components in terms of like how information is displayed how you're actually going to be you using the component and then basically the last six months has been going through an analysis of looking of looking at each of those components in that way and basically taking an 18xx component and just making it a little bit better hope you know hope Hopefully a little bit better. Yeah. Let's step back to the story. Sure. Yeah. We had lunch with Ananda Gupta a month ago, and we talked a lot about how did you get the rights to these games? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love so to if you don't that. mind talking about it, yeah. I'd love to hear the story again. You know, maybe maybe we even step a step back. Why 18xx? Why did you get yeah. in, Why Why is that the basis for what you want to do now in games? Yeah, that's a, no, that's a great question. So, uh, yeah, I, could, I can uh, run through a bit of the, the story of how I got into games and uh, why I eventually started Grand Trunk. It's a great question, and that's why I get the big bucks for what I do. I just want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I played games all my life, mostly um, like video games and stuff like that growing up. I got into board games probably um, when I went went to college, and it was like this year's standard get into board games thing i was playing settlers of Catan. back in those days i lived in a bit a big house with a bunch of people like 20 or 30 other people um and there was one copy of Catan in the house so after we came back from class so back in those days we were playing Catan. it was a very sought after item so we'd come come back home from class and Catan isn't there so you go and checking each room and trying to find where's Catan. okay i have the next game kind of thing so we were playing, yeah, and we played a lot of Catan, and then I started just, I started looking into, and then kind of, when I was playing Catan, I kind of felt like, hmm, I'd like something that's kind of got a little bit more strategy. There's, you know, some some dice rolling and randomness. So anyways, I started buying games, and I got into, like, Dominion, and playing, I think it was, like, Vegas Showdown, and all, all kinds of other games. So I, I, I started playing those games, and every game I played... I kind of always was left with this, hmm, it's not exactly what I'm looking for yet. Uh, and, and something that I value is, I, so the reason I play board games is there's a living, breathing person in front of me. And I think that's, it's a really fun dynamic to put myself against you and see like, okay, who can outsmart the other person? Who can outwit the other person? So the thing I was kind of hitting with all these games is that, okay, well... You know, the game is fun, but what I'm doing is I want to play against the person, and so I want my decisions to matter. I want to, I want to, be, I want to be in control of my own fate. And so a lot of these games kind of felt as though maybe the game is deciding some of the, some of the outcome of the game as opposed to my decisions. So I was on this pursuit, and this for many, many years, I kind of started going deeper and deeper, and I realized I was getting kind of skewing down toward all these heavy games. So it started with Catan and Dominion, and eventually I found myself... In uh, splatter games, 
Um, so splatter like food chain magnate, Great Zimbabwe, Indonesia. And so I started playing splatter games. And then there was this other genre of games I had heard of for a long, long time. And uh, I, kept, I always thought to myself, like, even though I'm playing heavy games, I wouldn't be able to handle that. And that, that was 18xx. Um, I looked at 18xx and thought, to my, and I had heard all these stories about there's this guy, like, you're going to go to this game store and you go to the basement and <laughs> you're going to be there for 10 hours and the players are like, they have their calculator. Like, this, you know, these are the things I heard. And it's like, right. it's like, oh, it's all. And, and it's not just heard, it's all true, right? So that's the fun. Okay, I'll get into that in a second. But so um, there is truth to it, but not all true. But um, so, anyways, I had heard about 18xx for a long time. And I kind of, even, even though I was going down this heavy, heavy path and I was like playing splatter games and I was loving splatter games because there are these perfect information games where the outcome of the game is based off of your decisions and everything is about how you're playing against the other player, which is my motto is play the player, not the game. Right. So, and eventually I say, okay, let's try out 18xx. Um, and so I try it. And it was a long game. Don't get me wrong. It was like my first game was like an eight-hour game of 18CZ. Um, but, but I was like, but I after I, after the experience, I was like, oh, was that it? I mean, yeah, it was long, but it wasn't that bad. Or so I played 18CZ that day uh, for eight hours, and then I it was like, probably we took a 30-minute break, and then we played 18 Max afterwards, which was a much shorter title. I think title it went for like three hours or something. And I was like, oh, I, I just had this whole concept built up in my head of. It's this 10-hour thing. People are going to be mean. You're going to cry. And then I walked away from it. I was like, oh. You didn't cry at all. I didn't. Well, I cried out of <laughs> no, no, I was going to say I cried out of joy. That, that was the truth. Actually, what's funny is I thought to myself, oh, that's it. <laughs> I mean, I had fun. But I remember thinking to myself, like, this is what people were, like, flipping out about. Like, oh, this is so tough and yada, yada, yada. Um, and maybe, granted, I was playing all these kinds of other heavy perfect information games at the time so maybe that had something to do with like oh i picked it up more easily but i was my interest was peaked i said okay well let me start digging into this more you go a little bit further down the rabbit hole you start uh you, you pmp 1889 you you try it out with some friends you go to your first uh, 18xx game convention and and, and and basically as you're kind of going as i start going into that i realized how deep 18xx does go uh, I mean, it's really like, it really, really is a fantastic game system. Um, there's, I will say that there are plenty of not so good 18xx games, but the ones that are good, uh, I think are the greatest games ever designed. So that, that started your love. Yes. For 18xx games. So today we're a few days away yep. from your first Kickstarter and you're using two properties that you've picked up the rights for and um so i'd like to i'd like to tell me a little bit about the kickstarter but i'd like also like to know the history as to how you found games and and decided to pursue those uh yeah so it's a uh, blackmail yes just blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> plain and simple blackmail <laughs> um so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how i started this i had spent about a year trying to get pivot my career into board games and I still had this kind of this hunger in me that I wanted to start my own company. And I was kind of thinking to myself, part of play t going to Playtable was also, oh, it's a startup that'll give me the bearings or that'll kind of give me the toolkit I need to start my own company. But I was always kind of delaying that whole let's actually do it thing. And so I, I looked over and I said to my wife, um, so I, 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 my wife is an occupational therapist actually. Uh, when I was working in tech, I put her through grad school for a few years. And so I, I looked at her and said, is it okay if I start my company uh, and you you support us while I'm working on this company? Cause I, and I, I was basically thinking about it like, if if I go to another company, I want to be excited to it about it and I want to commit to it. So I'd want to do that for another four years. My wife and I have already been together for a while and we were already thinking, okay, like kids are on the horizon and stuff like that. So if there's a time to do it, now it's kind of the time, so it kind of doesn't make sense to go back to another tech job. So pretty much, I felt, and I was, for a long time, I was looking at 18xx, and I thought 18xx was so, it was so weird that 18xx were such good games, yet it's still so niche. 
it was just like this bizarre thing to me. Like, would it make sense for Twilight Struggle to only have two hundred units printed? Like, it's like Twilight Struggle is not a not a light game, and it's a game that takes a few hours, you know, two to three hours to play. It's vastly deep. There's so much things, so many things going on, and it's kind of like I felt like eighteen ninety six kind of has the same thing where it's like all these amazing games, but it costs like one hundred fifty dollars, two hundred dollars to get a game. It might take six months, nine months, twelve months to get a game. Maybe it's not even in print. To me, these are some of the best games ever made. So I kind of thought to myself, "All right, let's let's print 18xx. Let's see if we can attack this." Because kind of my whole mindset in terms of what I wanted to do in terms of with my career is at my tech company. I was learning how to scale uh, our services team. When I was at Playtable, I was trying to figure out how do you scale board game distribution. Okay, how do I scale 18xx? How do I scale its audience? So that was in the that was actually summer of 2018 uh, is when I started it, and from then it was just it's just grinding and hustling. You just you just email anyone and everyone. There's no like when some people say that oh there's no secret to it. You just gotta work hard. Like nobody knows. What I actually found this out when you're actually doing it is real. Really nobody knows what they're doing. They're just making guesses and trying. Okay, will this work? I guess so. So pretty much what I did is I sent out um, as many emails as I could, uh, as many emails as I could to as many people as I could and try to start up conversations. Uh, and most people didn't respond to me. <laughs> most people didn't respond to me uh, for a long time. Um, but it's, it's, it, oftentimes it's, it's, it's hard work, but it's also having the guts yeah, to do yeah. that, right? And because everybody's afraid. Everybody's yeah. terrified of it. I, re- I remember, it, but you know, you talked about not knowing. Somebody said once that um, that Thomas Edison, that one of his big advantages was that he didn't know, right, right, and and so he didn't know the stuff he couldn't do, so he just tried it. Yeah, <laughs> he just did it. And I don't know. So I, I did do I did uh, two years of volunteer work where a big component of it was uh, doing door to door sales. Like we, you have like a uh, you do like a mission trip to another country. And so you set up, you create a project, and then you just do door-to-door sales to raise money to go do that project. Uh, so I did that. I was I did that. Uh, so between high school and college, I did that, and I was knocking on doors twelve hours a day. So it's kind of, I guess I got, I already had, I was already kind of a um, had a, a little bit of that grit before, but man, that'll te- that'll teach you to something about yourself doing yeah. that. Yeah, and so, you, you learn to do it, and you you you're, you it's like a muscle that you've never used, and suddenly you're strong in that regard. Yeah, and so when people aren't responding to my email, when people are saying, when people are saying like this isn't this is not a good idea, then I'm just like, okay, <laughs> we'll we'll we'll, t- we'll talk in a few months. And a lot of it is also um, consistency because I think that I think a lot of people, the people who did respond, um, I mean. So Ian Wilson, who's the designer of the games that we'll be, uh, I'll be publishing, which is 1861, 1867. I mean, Ian Wilson, he, oh my God, he's, he's a really, really, really good dude. He's just, I would write these long emails and he would, he, the only thing, like the, probably the most painful thing in his day was like reading my emails and then he would like respond to them. I'm like, I don't know why he's doing this. But so, and cause I was just sharing my ideas with him. I was like, I, I was like, I think 18xx has a lot of potential. I don't think. Because pretty much for a board game to have a normal, like relatively normal price, pretty much like 1,500 to 2,000 units is what you need to do. 18xx, the reason it's so expensive is because it has so many games that, um, has a lot of games and the probably the max demand for, okay, I shouldn't say max, but the demand, historical demand for a lot of those games was just in the few hundreds. And so until you can hit that like, that inflection point, um, that critical mass of like fifteen hundred to two thousand, you really, you really can't, um, you really can't mass manufacture and get the price down to a, to a normal level. So, anyways, I was trying to explain to him. Uh, I, I think a big part of that was explaining to him like I think, I think eighteen XX can justify a two thousand unit print run. I I just think the games are good enough. I I even though there's this whole stigma around it. All these people think that the games are too complex or, Harold, you wouldn't be able to play that game. You you need to be able to t- tolerate a 10-hour game and have a higher level of understanding of the universe or something. But I was just kind of, like, my experience was like, no, it's not as bad as people make it out to be. It's actually quite fun and it's actually quite good. And I think a lot more people should play it. Um, 
so that went on for many months, many, many months. And so I told my wife it was uh, a year. Or, or So what did I say to her? I said to her, give me a year. <laughs> give me a year to make money or something so that she so she's my she's my investor and so she's always she's always watching me and tapping on her watch like <laughs> it's been six months joshy what's going on so sh- sh- i have a uh, four clock shelves i have a two by two it's like basically 16 cubbies and she's limited me to that so that's my collection <laughs> i was like babe Babe, like, no, no, I need this game. It's like, no, it's like you sell one and you replace it with another game. Right, so. right. That's my, my wife. Every now and then I'll bring home five games. Like, and she said, don't don't you already have a bunch of games? That's So that's exactly what she says. I'm like, but that's not like, okay, you've read. Just because you've read a bunch of books doesn't mean you don't want to read more books. Like, Honey, you, just, don't, you don't get me. <laughs> you don't even get me. Okay, so anyways. Uh, so it was emailing for six months. And it was pretty much the end of, it was actually the end of 2018. And, and so in the, in the meantime, so I don't have a license to work with. In the meantime, I'm kind of working other stuff. So I was trying to figure out, okay, well, what's this company even going to be? And actually at the time I was trying to find other things to like, okay, I was working on like graphic design projects for 18xx to basically I already started digging into graphic design even back then. So I was working on that, uh, trying to rewrite rule books and stuff just to put my head around it and teach 18xx um and also doing like play testing for different things because my my idea at the time was oh if i show them like i was play testing these different variants and stuff then maybe they'd be more interested in playing with me because they would get what i'm what i was doing um so anyways uh that was six months and it was the end of 2018 it was around that time i was basically thinking to myself like if i don't get a license signed like soon this thing ain't, ain't gonna work because you can't be a company that reprints board games if you don't have any game games to print. Uh, and I was I I know that I'm not really wasn't really up to task for necessarily designing an 18xx game on my own. I I'm aware of like kind of where my limitations are. Like maybe at some point I think I'd be ready for it, but at this time not yet. Um. Anyways, I t- I I was corresponding with Ian Wilson, and I told him like, look, I know that I know that you uh, have a rela- so uh, it was in publication through uh, all aboard games. Uh, as I was saying to Ian, look, I know you have a relationship with Scott. I know that you've been you uh, have been trusting him with your babies, but pretty much like I want to find a I want to print a game that is a is classic 18xx game that is easy enough. I don't want to say easy enough because I I believe anybody can learn pretty much on any 18xx game um i want a game that is short enough packs a big enough wallop um and it's like a great game that could be your first 18xx game or it could be your hundredth i want a game i want a game that you could you can discover the genre with but you can keep playing over and over and still getting value from it and to me 1861 67 was that because it's it, it plays quick the game is probably, in my opinion, is, has the most elegant merger mechanic. Now you keep saying the game, but it's two games. It is two games. Yes. So, so um, 1861 was originally designed in 2005. Um, so it's basically Ian Wilson's love letter to the uh, history of railway development in Imperial Russia. So it goes from 1861 up to 1917. Um, and it's pretty much uh, so. The way that uh, it works in Russia is they have this gigantic co- uh, country. And they're trying to develop that their railway infrastructure. So they pretty much they started supporting all these little pop-up. It's pr- pretty much subsidizing all these small like startup railway companies around the big metropolitan areas. Exactly right. So there's like Moscow, Kiev, Kharkov, and all those uh, Saint Petersburg. Um, and then eventually, um, and then basically, as the time rolls on, the uh, the government railway starts to absorb. The government starts to absorb all the um, small fledgling companies that basically can't keep up with the railway technology. So they're pretty much they're bailing out all the insolvent companies because they're all their trains have like gone out of. Uh, st- I don't want to say style. All the trains have basically fallen into obsolescence. Um, so pretty much that's the that's the story of 1861. But then the game's re- like so you have all these small companies that you're running and you can merge them together into these big companies. And the, there's a really interesting puzzle in the game about how you organize. Organizes mergers, timing the mergers, timing all the placement and um, 
and managing your money and making sure that you can use utilize these companies to like buy trains across from this company and throw this company away or use it to to buy another train so there's all these kinds of really cool puzzles in it and but it's it's all these cool puzzles but the game plays in like three hours which is which is pretty good for uh by 18xx standards um and so uh, so, so that's 61. 1867 is based in Canada, which is using the same system. So actually, I mean, imagine that you have these two gigantic countries and they had a kind of similar problems for developing the railway infrastructure. So Canada is 1861's core game uh, with, with some changes to the rules to make it a little bit kind of a little bit more flexible in terms of how the companies start. And it's a lot more aggressive in terms of how the game paces along and how the government railway starts to absorb companies. Um, but anyways, like these are games, part of why I was so interested in them is these are games that, and also another thing is that the games, um, the games introduce mechanics in phases. So you, there's like, you start the game with minor companies. It's actually quite straightforward in terms of how you operate your small companies. Then you kind of go into your merger phase and you're running your big companies and the national railway is going to come and start gobbling guys up. So it's kind of like it's g ideal for learning in that sense, but the the puzzles that it offers in just this short playtime, it just keeps players coming back over and over again. So I mean, I know people who've played the game over a hundred times. I know that people who've played the game over two hundred times, um, and and to me that was that was the mark of of a game that was a classic that deserved to be printed over and over and over again and released to the masses. And that was kind of going back to that thing I was saying earlier where it's I I felt like these are all such great games. I wanted to make sure people had access to them and were able to learn them and appreciate them and enjoy them. So you're talking about how ideas for refining some of the components and things. If you have an earlier version of the games, how will the new version, the Kickstarter version, be different? There's a lot. Um, so, I mean, a lot of stuff that Ian and I were working on the core thing that we were working on is 18xx has this reputation for being difficult to learn. How do we make it, how do we get, break down that barrier to, barrier to entry for learnability? How do we make it so somebody can just dive in and, and, and not feel overwhelmed or whatever? And it's not to say that players necessarily feel that way, but they think that they're going to feel that way. So how do we kind of start to peel back, peel back the, the onions and peel back the layers? So a few things that we worked on was uh, a short time as a factor for people playing this game. We worked on, Ian, I say we, Ian worked on a short variant, and then I, I looked along and I pretended like I was, I was really helping when he was the one doing all the work. Uh, so he introduced a short variant, which kind of gives you the experience of the game. So, pr so pretty much you have all these, you have, uh, in the game you have 16 minor companies that, and as you're starting the game, you're going to be running two, three, four minor companies at a time, possibly, and um, or you'll you'll not necessarily simultaneously, but you'll be cycling through them, and so um, what Ian and I worked on is okay. How is there a way we can just kind of get somebody kicked off kicked off of the game? Because when you go into the game, you don't know what something's worth. You don't really know how you're supposed to work all these things together. We started off with uh, the short variant has just a bundle of games or bundle of companies that you are put together so you can just kind of get started going with something that's like, you know, the relative values of kind of how people play the play the game. I kind of don't like that it's prescribing, oh, this is how you should play the game. But I thought it was, I thought it was a worth the trade-off for getting somebody started. Other stuff is uh, I have a learning, learning scripted scenario where it kind of takes those bundled, uh, those bundles of different companies and it'll run you through uh, the first two, the games they have something called operating rounds where you actually run the companies, they're gonna build track and run their trains and stuff. It runs you through the first two sets of operating rounds. Uh, so it's four operating rounds where you're building out the company, it'll show, shows you the stock round, it shows you, basically it shows you all these different mechanics that are in the game within the first two, four, four operating rounds. So you can pretty much, you educate yourself as you're playing the game. Other stuff that's happening are like, I mean, we did like a full graphical overhaul with a huge usability assessment. So other things that we're introducing is we. I was thinking, okay, well, we can make the we can have the tiles have like colorblind icons. We can have um, different um, ways of organizing information on the components. I was talking about the charters earlier. A another thing is that the 1861 and 1867, uh, they. 
in, in all these 18xx games, they have stock markets. I think I can't think of an 18xx, 18xx game that does not have a stock market. And so the market for 1861 and the market for 1867 are different. And normally in the other versions, the, game, the stock market is stuck to the map itself. And so you actually can't play... Uh, you can't play 1867 using the 1861 market, and you can't play 1867 or 61 using the 1867 market. So one thing I want to do is I want to split that up, split that up so that you can basically flip the board over and use whatever you wanted to. And I kind of thought that kind of felt like a no-brainer because you know some people have their preference. Why not? And I think using the 1867 market for 1861 uh, is great for usability because it's, it's easier to. It's kind of hard to describe without seeing it visually, but it's easier to manage, just physically manage playing the game. So I probably, I've probably put about 100 hours into rewriting the rule book. I, I'm, st I'm still not at the level that I want it to be, um, but I've put a lot of time into reworking the rule book and making it so that, so, so the deal with 18xx is it's, People always regard 18xx as a very complicated thing to learn. It's very challenging. If you go into an 18xx rulebook, I had John Getz Games who he reads rulebooks for a living. And he, he re learns how to play games from rulebooks for a living. And he goes and shoots a video and shows you how to play it. I, I gave him the rulebook and he couldn't make heads or tails of it. The, to me, the problem with 18xx is not necessarily that it's so complicated. Feast for Odin is complicated. I think that it's that the way that the the information is presented is, is is not conducive to learning. So, a big thing that I've been focusing on is how do I take this rulebook that that assumes you already understand 18xx, and how do I take this rulebook that you know it bas it's not going to explain information because like oh well you already know that so we are you already have the high level concepts here are the differences. Um, that's not it's not to say that all rulebooks are. are are bad necessarily, but that is a theme that I've noticed. And and for John, who does that for a living, to struggle with it in, in the way that he did, I felt kind of spoke volumes to. Okay, that's that felt like the crux of the issue to me. So I've been working on the rulebook to not just rewrite it, but to get it in front of people, see see how they're learning with learning with it, doing blind readings of like, hey, check out this rulebook and it's kind of, <laughs> let me let me let me seduce you into reading this thing that you probably should don't want to be reading like in its current state um anyways that it, that has been a really really big effort in terms of trying to get the uh the rulebook in a in a place where i feel that i could put it in front of a new player they could pick it up and they could learn the game with what's in the box and on top of that also not necessarily new in this version but other things i'm working on is getting uh sponsoring teach and playthroughs on YouTube, getting uh, teach and playthroughs, live streams and all that stuff, getting more resources, materials out there for people to just be able to pick up the game and get started with it without without needing to have a teacher present. So you go live on Kickstarter on the 18th of October. It happens pretty quick here, doesn't it? <laughs> well, well, I mean, based on where we are today, we're just a, f we're a few days before. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it didn't feel quick up until about a few days ago. I was trying to i was originally planning to launch sometime in the summer and then we kept work we kept hitting all these hitches with graphic design because and a big thing that i wanted to do is I, I really wanted to make sure i didn't didn't rush it up in front because i wanted to make sure i was digging each of these components and really thinking about it because 18xx has been done wrong enough times that i wanted to make sure i i at least gave it the the try to do it right and so it was pretty much so. I actually had the, I had the Kickstarter page ready for several weeks, um, and I was pretty much waiting. Part of why the launch happened quickly is because I was planning to launch end of September, and then we hit a snag with the maps. Um, so actually, I think you were you were you were there when we were um, doing basically looking at the actual composition, but. My whole my whole idea was that okay, what we can do is we can have the map map, and we have all this player aid information and all the stuff around the map. Uh, and my idea was that people that would help people utilize the information, get you know, and and use it f to facilitate their play. And then, as I was playtesting with it, it just wasn't gelling. Um, and part of I was I was trying to I was trying to convince myself, no, 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 it, it works, it works fine. And then after playtesting, I realized like. You know what? We have to 
yeah, we have to we have to basically take the map, cut out all these components, separate the, out these components into different things, and organize the information differently. And the reason I was avoiding that was because that means I have to change the size of the board, uh, which also might mean that I have to change the size of the box. Luckily, the the box didn't have to change. At least for right now, the board size did have to change. Um, but that kind of so I was I was had all my stuff ready. I was thinking, okay, we're launching end of September, and then we hit that snag. And I was okay. We need a we need to make sure that we get this right. I'm not launching with this thing, with this thing knowing knowing that it needs to get changed and updated. So that's why I kind of felt like it. The the Kickstarter kind of from the time that once we got the maps actually ready, I was like I was just ready to go because I've been waiting. My wife was tapping on her watch too, <laughs> but I also I also was very eager eager to get it started because. Um, I just been working on this thing for so long. Like I want, I want to keep keep getting it to the next stage, and then I was really trying to be conservative about making sure that I was only doing it when it was ready. And I, it was the time that I basically announced it. I was like, it's ready. And like I, I had that, you know, when you like do something, like you turn in. Well, I guess like if you like turn in an essay or you turn some project in, and you kind of feel like it's ready. Like you, you kind of you feel good. Like it's we we're we're there. Um, I I when I announced it i had that feeling i was like yeah it's there uh of, of course like there's obviously art is still uh still being updated it's work in progress there's all kinds of, like the kickstarter page all there's plenty of stuff that was still work in progress but i was like this is a this is something i i, I would be proud to show um so 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 we got it there and then after that i was just really eager to make sure that i wanted to share share it with people and uh get this thing get this project going We've seen a number of 18xx games on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and followed them closely for all of us that are interested in these types of games. For all the reasons you mentioned, we have an accessibility problem, we have a price problem. It would be great to solve them, and which is part of your goal. What have we learned from the Kickstarters that have already crossed the finish line, and how do they? And how do you think your project may or may not be different? So the thing that was kind of a jaw dropper. So 18 Chesapeake launched in April of this year and nobody expected what that was going to do. It raised 170,000, which was it's an 18xx game. So how many units is that help me? Uh I think the Kickstarter the actual ba- the actual number of backers was around like 1500, but the units so the all aboard who's doing it um, you could order batches of units like 6 and 12 units. So I think it actually worked out to be around 2000 units. Kickstarter pre-orders. So that's, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of a bonkers number because a, a year ago I was trying to convince all, I was emailing everyone and trying to convince them that 18xx is ready for a 2,000 unit print run, and then this Kickstarter comes around, and the Kickstarter pre-orders is is 2,000 because typically you, a lot of people think that oh you kickstarted, you know you kickstarted a thousand units so you're just printing a thousand units. No, you're gonna you're gonna print. Hopefully, you're printing more than that and trying to get residual sales for going through all the headache of actually getting the thing printed, printed and shipped over from wherever it is. I'm, I'm, I'll be ch- ch- uh, printing in China. It's and by the way, it's a terrible emotional exercise, right? I see game companies go through this all the time because each additional increment is a little bit cheaper. Yep. And yep. the next one's a little bit yep. cheaper. And so and so like, so because the thing is, it's there is a reality. There is a there is a scenario where you print you print a thousand extra games, and people don't want them. You know there's, that, that's that's a reality. You know maybe maybe you print two thousand extra games and you sell a thousand of them. Awesome job, and a thousand just sit because the time that you're selling those games is probably within the two months after release, most likely, unless you have an evergreen. But that's another story. So it's possible the insult to injury is that you're gonna have to torch those games. You're gonna have, if you can't sell them, that's burnt, you're burning your taxes. You're paying inventory on them. It's actually cheaper to just send them to the incinerator. Um, but anyway, so it was it was bonkers to think that. 18, so so the, your question was, which was a great question, Harold. Thank you. As you as you always ask, <laughs> um, what did you learn? And I think the the big thing, the big eye opener for me is I was telling all these people that 18xx could justify like a 1500 unit 2000 unit print run and then when 18 chesapeake hit i realized that oh 
it's gonna it's actually has a potential for more than that. When, when I was when I was starting it, I was thinking to myself like, okay, well like, okay, we'll raise like hopefully raise like thirty thousand or hope something like that. So that number that number kind of blew away my expectations. So even even me who is the one who's you know trying to advertise that this is a thing that's going to happen. Um, so I think that's a big thing. I mean, among other things, I like. Sorry, Scott, but basically, um, one thing was uh, Scott runs all board games. So one thing is that uh, he didn't want to initially include paper money in the game. So it was very typical for 18xx players to use poker chips for the game because poker chips are designed to make counting a lot of things easy. To, to um, use their own poker chips, so it doesn't really matter what's with the game. Right, right. And, and, the, and the company doesn't have to provide me with any poker chips. I have my own. Right. And every 18xx mogul that I know has their own stash, has nothing to do with the games, and they use it at every game. Exactly. And, and I mean, and some of these guys spend thousands of dollars on these poker chips, but I'll, I'll leave that for another, uh, another point. Anyway, so I think one, a, a few things I learned there is that Scott originally didn't want to include paper money, but it's kind of wasn't really thinking about, well, these are going to be new players. They might not have poker chips. They're not going to have those things. So he made it a stretch goal to include paper money, and the thing that I realized there is that, yeah. So he was going to provide no money. It, originally. Originally. I mean, he, he turned it okay. into a stretch goal to include include paper money. Um, and the thing that I realized is, that, like, yeah, you that's, it is part, it is, like, as much as it hurts, because paper money is actually not cheap when it comes to actually including it with a game, and it's wasteful for the environment and all that stuff. And it's really painful to think that, like, a lot of people are going to get this game, and they're either not going to use it, they might throw it away. I, you know, we don't know what they're going to do with it. So it's painful to think about that, but at the same time, like you have to, you have to ship the complete game. So, anyways, that was that was ultimately so that was a big learning from that, as well as seeing the actual amount that it raised. Um, one thing that I'm bummed about with my campaign that I'm, I kind of w- so. The other 18xx campaigns have these cute ways of like making an 18xx themed to do their stretch goals, and like my stretch goal, stretch goals are like beautiful and laid out well, uh, but they don't they're not 18xx themed. So I'm a little bit bummed <laughs> about that. I wanted to have like something cute. Right. But, well, that's uh, one of the things that in six months you will you will not do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe the next next project you could yeah. do something cool with different yeah. technology and trains or something. I I'm I am so excited for the next project. It's unreal. I'm like, I've been, I've been burst, like bursting. Well, we're all, we're, so, so how, how long until we hear more about that? Is that at six months, a year? Uh, that, that'll be, that'll be after 61, 67, after the Kickstarter wraps, then, then I'll, I'll probably be able to talk about that. Cause I, I, I'd like to make sure that, um, I, I want to make sure that people are focusing on, uh, my current, current project that I'm working on and everybody's eyes are, eyes are on that. I think once that's wrapped and we're good i mean obviously i'll be working on manufacturing and fulfilling and all that but i think once once the kickstarter wraps then i'll be able to talk about it that's smart very easy to get distracted in this process yeah, yeah. so um what about gmt released 1846 yep what did we learn from that how many units do you know what they printed gmt's 1846 i think is a an excellent example of a way to do 18xx and show what 18xx can actually do. I'm, uh, I believe they're on their second or third printing, and I think they're sitting out. They're at around 5,000 units right now. Um, total. Total. Yeah. yeah. Um, which, which, like, for for a lot of other board game genres, is like, okay, whatever. But for 18xx, that's probably the most. That might be the most sold 18xx ever. Well, actually, no, 1830. But. Um, 1830, which goes back to Avalon Hill printing. That's huge. that's one one of the one of the originals. Um, so, with 1846, 18xx games are all there's this kind of anchor that uh, is locked into an 18xx player's heads of what the price of an 18xx game is, and they're, they're because the games are handmade, and they're so stuck on that price that they're kind of they're they're able to justify paying mentally justify paying like $200, $250 for Harold. I spent 200, $271 on a, on a board game. Yeah. Uh, I don't regret it by the way. Right. That's, that's uh, to me, it's the greatest game ever made, but it's just, so I think GMT really flipped the script in terms of 
of who the who's actually buying 18xx games because before the only people who could afford an 18xx game were affluent people who were already really sold on the genre like the, you're they're already totally diehard fans to even be able to mentally justify spending that kind of money on these games you price out a huge number of new interested players that just can't even, do it harold even above even above like a price like 80 bucks it already you already killed a lot of people. It, it's there's an expectation the consumer has about what something's value is worth, and until you're actually sold on the game system, until you actually understand the intrinsic value of the game based on its its uh, competitive merit, you you are going to evaluate the game based off of what's in the box. It's it's that's just that's just the way your brain's going to fire off, and so you need to be convinced that what's in the box is worth the price that you're paying. So, I think GMT. I think they did excellently. They got the price down. I got. I mean, they were selling copies of eighteen forty six for like thirty bucks, uh, and that's a that's one of the. It's just a, it's just a stupid easy way to get people into it is not have the price be so so high. You give them. I mean, I don't like. I'm not a big fan of the. I think the GMT components are actually no. Actually, they're they're pretty decent with the exception of the uh, the cardboard chits like for the station tokens. Um, other than that, it's a pretty decent production value. Um, and so it's like, how come we can do this with 1846 and not with with these other games? Also, uh, kudos to GMT as well as Tom Lehman. I mean, they have they had a great rulebook, detailed example of play, kind of as GMT all this does. stuff that GMT's good at, right? Yeah. How and do you? I, and that also, I think, also meant that a lot of people that enjoy GMT games for all those reasons, yeah, picked it up. Yeah. Right. Uh, even though you know they may not have been core eighteen XX gamers, they were all strategy gamers. Yeah, and eighteen forty—I mean, it was a—it was a really, really smart move on GMT because eighteen forty-six is a great title in terms of um, a lot of eighteen XX games. Um, I, I don't mean to say that they're complicated, but there's kind of a few steps to. There's, it's a little bit slower to get started in terms of you might start play a game and you start with this auction and you're kind of not sure why, why you're doing this auction and you go to this thing. I mean, it's. I think they picked picked a really good title to to uh, pilot their 18xx uh, branch of games off with because it's it's got like a draft. A lot of a lot of the things about the game are pretty pretty intuitive. Um, you know, I would I would love to know both for Chesapeake and for 46. How many of those buyers were first-time buyers that didn't own an 18xx game? I mean, that, I would pay I, to know. <laughs> I, well, I know, and, and, and that that's what kills me, right? Some yeah. of this data is so important to, and, and not in sque- squeezing out a few more dollars of profit, but it's really important in knowing what kind of games to provide. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And I I just wish that they would survey their customer a little more. Um, or that we knew more about Chesapeake, and I hope, and I say that because you have an opportunity, right? You to, put me to on really, the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I wonder what kind of information you can gather about <clears throat> what these customers look like, because it may be that they're all they've played one or a hundred times before. Yeah. But but the, but and we all have our opinion of who that customer is going to be. But yeah. the more you know about it, the better service you'll be able to provide those people for game two, three, and four. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I guess all it has to be is maybe even just one question of Have you played X? Uh, how many times have you played eighteen XX before? Zero, or you know, I haven't played yet. I played a few times. I play often. Maybe, maybe. Even well, not. that's a breakthrough, right? Right. I would. I right. have. I have ten more questions for you, but but I mean, I think that's a breakthrough if, if we had some information on that. And I'd love to know the history, certainly with GMT. And but Her- Harold, we all we also understand that you asked great questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You beat me to death. I'm this. sorry. That's all right. No, I I, uh, I certainly deserve it. So <clears throat> we have the Kickstarter coming. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about what the packages are that people can get? Yeah, I mean, so I'm... So 61 and 67 are two games, but the map is printed on the back. Yep, yep. So, so you buy one box, you get both games fundamentally. Yeah, so I we had a lot of fun uh, putting this together because, so uh, historically, 61 and 67, so 61 was sold as, its, uh, as a game, and then you pretty much buy... So 1867 is a standalone game, but you would use 1861 components for it because a lot of the core mechanisms of the game are the same, so you're going to use the same company, same shares and trains and all that, for the most part. Um, 
so I thought it would be really cool if, hey, you know, it, you're already overlapping so much of the stuff. Just like, let's throw it in, in one box. And so I was looking at the components and I was like, well, it doesn't make sense to like provi provide two copies of each of these components. In fact, when I was looking into producing two copies of each component, the, the main concern was actually the stuff's not going to fit in the box. Uh, even we'd have to have like a giant box, and I, I, had, I had a few other ideas about how I wanted to, the the box size to actually even be. So I was like, oh well, let's look into double siding everything. And so pretty much, I mean, double siding is is a, a way of pretty much being able to fit squeeze two games in that one box. But also, it made it a lot more affordable to be able to print the two games, which is why I was able to get the price point down to what it is, which is sixty dollars. Sixty dollars for two games in one box, which is I think. I mean, I will say that I think that's pretty bonkers based off of what 18xx currently costs. But the thing that I really had fun with with this is that so we're double pretty much we're double siding almost everything in the box. So we actually double sided the box. And I don't know, like we'll see how this goes in retail. But I have a full cover, I have a full cover for 1861 on one side, and I have a full cover for 1867 on the other side. And so I got, um, I spent a long time. I actually just put a blog post up. Uh, Ye oh, this morning. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my God. A wow. long time ago this morning. Uh, well, because I was up since like 4 or whatever, this 4.30 this well, morning. Well, plus you're cooking breakfast burritos. <laughs> of course. It's, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm just uh, still still digesting them. But so uh, I put a blog post up this morning kind of detailing out uh, how those covers came came to fruition. And um, I spent a long time looking for an artist who, who I thought like would capture the th what I was looking for, but also had knowledge of trains. And it's kind of, I don't know why I came in with like that specific, oh, I want this. And then, so I kind of set myself for, up for failure. Luckily I found him, Eric Frobram, look him up. He's really good. But uh, he did these two really beautiful spreads on the, on the, on the box. And so it's, it's cool. Cause like the whole game is double-sided. It's like double-sided box, double-sided map, double-sided stock market, double-sided everything. Except for the tokens. People will give me a lot of, crap for that tokens are not double-sided <laughs> that's okay we'll give you a break on that huh we spoke about list of the top five games and what those mean to you if we disqualify the two games you're putting on kickstarter sure sure out of fairness i think um what what are your top five and 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 are they the top five how do we think about this is it the top five that influenced you or that you enjoy? I think I would say the top five games that I think were an accomplishment to design. I think that... Um, Breakthroughs. Breakthrough games that really achieved something that hadn't been done before. Um, I think those are, those are important games to design. So not like great games to play, games that I always look forward to playing and enjoy more with each play, but not just that, breakthroughs. Um, and so I'll probably start start off uh, at the bottom of the list. Um, so I'll like, so I have, I have my favoritest, most favorite game in mind, but I'll start, start off at the bottom of the list. Um, I would say The Great Zimbabwe. Great Zimbabwe is a game by Splatter Spellin that is so it's a game about an interconnected economy. So you're you're basically you're scoring points by using other people's other people have different services that they can provide to you and you have to pay them money to use it. And there's like a lot, kind of limited resources on the board that reset each round. But the game is so has so much depth for for what it is it's it's kind of it's ostensibly a simple game but it plays but you get so much interaction between the players and how the money shifts around i'll say this great zimbabwe is it just does so much with so little um it is a game that you can play in 60 to 90 minutes a lot of the time uh it plays well at two players three players four players five players and it's a perfect information game where everything everything is about how you are influencing the the players at the table. It's is a really really fantastic game. The next on the list is sorry another splatter spell in a game called Indonesia. Um, Indonesia does something that I've never seen another game do 
before it, and still I've yet to see any game do what it does after it, which is having the most elegant merger merger of companies uh, that I've ever seen, where I can, I might not actually, Harold, you own a company, we have another player sitting at the table who owns a company, I'm not involved with either of your companies, and I can force you to merge them. And it's it's brilliantly executed, and the game is incredibly elegant for what it for what uh, gameplay it provides. It doesn't it doesn't hit the, the table as often because it does it does take a bit of time to play. It's like usually a four hour game, but man, Indonesia. Uh, I think um, the next game is so the next three are eighteen XX games. The next one's eighteen forty one. Eighteen forty one. Is so normally in 18xx games you can own shares of companies, players. In 1841, companies can own shares of companies. You can use your company to uh, to open another company and basically create all this capital. So you're you have it's this kind of bizarre game where you can exponentiate capital and you're 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 building your own Ponzi schemes with pure, you're it's building your, your bubbles. Own, They're right. So. Yeah, and you're building you're building these. Um, you can build vertical chain Ponzi schemes in the game. Like, uh, it's just, and that game was de designed in 1994. It's just, it's just bonkers to me that that game, uh, anyways, I know I sound excited, but I am very excited that the game can, like no game does that the way that 1841 does it. It's just, it's just absolutely fantastic game. The only reason I haven't, um, so it's, to me, it's, it will be a 10 out of 10. The only reason I haven't rated it as 10 out of 10 on, on my Board Game Geek is because I don't think I have enough plays yet to justify it to bump it up, bump it up there yet. Um, but I think once I get more plays, I think it's that get, that goes to a ten. The next one is eighteen thirty. So the eighteen thirty is the the granddaddy of them all in my in my eyes for eighteen XX because that's what's created this entire genre. And eighteen thirty has it's probably one of the most simple eighteen XX games that you can play. And the thing I love about it is it just gets the game out of the way, and it's about you and me. It's about because in that game you also everybody's just dirt poor. Nobody has. Um, you bought all these shares of these companies, and they pay out nothing. <laughs> and everything is about just trying to stomp on the other guy to get in the head. It's like it's a bunch of crabs in a bucket, and everybody's just trying to pull each other down. Uh, it's for a game that came out more than 30 years ago. I'm I'm just dumbfounded every time I play it. It's just such a good game. And then the last game uh, is the only game that I've spent this much money on. I spent $271 on this game, which is 1817. Um, so what 1817 does is it is it's so it's it's based in 18xx, but really it's just a giant financial sandbox, if you will, like. This is a game. So normally in 18xx games, you can take, you can buy shares of companies, but in 1817, you can short companies. You can take in a board game. They figured out a way how to short sell a company, take a negative share, and then you have to pay that share back and all that stuff. And so also not only that, so that was a big innovation that 1817 introduced. Not only that, it introduced a dynamic loan interest rate. So in the game, you can take loans, and then as you take more loans, the interest rate on each of those loans starts to drive up and it ticks up. Norm it used to be that you can get a hundred bucks, you only pay five bucks around for that. Oh, now interest rates forty bucks. So you take a hundred dollar loan, you're immediately paying forty dollars interest on it every operating round. So, and then it also has so many. It's pretty much has as any tool you could think of in terms of being able to manage your company. You can liquidate your company. You can merge your companies. You can uh, you can sell your company. Hey, you want this company? I'll sell it to you. You can. Um, you can you can for, uh, do force forcible um, hostile takeovers of other people's companies. It just has it. It is a game that you could probably play one game for the rest of your life and still keep keep getting something out of it. Well, Josh, thanks for spending the time and talking about uh, 1861 and 1867, and uh, I know they're coming to Kickstarter soon. So I hope to get this out and get the word out because I'm excited. Do you, you have no idea, uh, Harold? I, I really appreciate you having me on, uh, and I am I am just so excited. So that's a wrap for this podcast. 
I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on Facebook and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to Blackfoot for the intro and outro music. Check them out on Facebook, Spotify, and iTunes. I'll close with a special thanks to Joshua Starr. And that's it for me. As always, I'm trying to avoid Kickstarter campaigns so I can sleep. And I'll be back soon. So what's the funniest thing you've done game-oriented? I mean, what's some funny event, some funny outcomes, some model dressed up as clowns? I, I mean, I don't know. What, have you ever done anything weird? Weird for board games? That's a good question. Uh, maybe that's maybe it's, you can't even define weird for board games, given that we start so weird. Well, what's, an, what's the story, what's this example that you have from, from your experience? Uh, don't turn this on me. <laughs> I'm, to, I'm, I'm just, interviewing you. I'm just trying to ask the good questions here. <laughs> We were playing 1846 at Gen Con this past year. Yep. My buddy and this other guy we didn't know that's running the thing, and, and they're competing, and the rest of us are kind of playing around. So at some point, my buddy decides, and this is late in the game where you make it long runs, that he needs to put down a marker on a city to control the path because if he doesn't do it, he's screwed. Yep. There's already one there. There's only room for two. Yep. So his turn, he says, okay, I, and I'm going to do this. And everybody, you know, everybody, everybody went, oh, but the guy we didn't know said the funniest thing. He said, I was playing nice and now you do this. <laughs> how, how could you? How could you? I was playing nice. Oh, That's so good. I love it. And, you know, it gave us, it was nice because it gave us one of those lines that we can carry around for the rest of our gaming careers. I was playing nice.